0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. This is episode number six in the seven episode repost of the sermon series for 2012 called Touchy Issues out of the book of First Corinthians. Throughout this sermon series, we have covered a myriad of issues surrounding sexuality. And the issue that we're going to cover today is deciding on singleness. So lead pastor Nick Gibson is going to walk us through how we could do. If this sparks your interest at all to look into these topics more in-depth, more resources about this are available at the Engage and Equip blog, which you can find a link to in the description. Thanks for listening.
1: Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians 7. If what you're pulling out is a pew Bible, that's page 1780. 1779, actually. For the last number of weeks, we've been talking about chapters six and seven and which is mostly all about um, relational status marital status particularly Um, and uh, between chapters six and seven we talked about sexual morality we talked about same-sex attraction we talked about um, marriage we talked about divorce and remarriage and this morning we come to the subject of singleness and um, one of the things I've, I've said each time is the focus of the passage has always been how are we to be fully devoted to God in this thing, whatever the subject is? And today's no different. I'm going to start reading in verse 25, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Out of This first line sounds a little funny out of context, but just hang in there. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy, as if they were not, those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep, and those who use the things of this world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do so. He should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. That line is a bit of a sarcastic jab in case you haven't been here for the whole series. First Corinthians is a bit of a sarcastic book which is not a biblical license for all sarcasm, I probably should say. So obviously today we're talking about singleness, and um, you know, in the 1950s or so, people would talk, you know, people felt as though, in the latter half of that century, that um, singleness was kind of a pariah. People didn't really like it, and you know, you're kind of weird if you were a single person. And that really isn't the case anymore in American culture. In 1950, only 22 percent of adults were single. Um, In 2009, the latest um, data we have is that 50% of adults are single, and in some cities, Madison is just sort of a city, but in places like Seattle, New York, LA, Atlanta, places like that, uh, particularly in the city centers, that the the rate of singleness is much higher than that, Um, such that there are Christian churches in places like Seattle that are 80% single. I think Tim Keller's church in New York City is something like 70 or 80% single. there's 96 million ad- adult singles in America, which is um, 43% of all of them. And of those, of those singles, um, 31 million of them l- live by themselves. There's nobody else in their household, which is 20% of all American households. Basically, a third of all American households are one person living by themselves. Um, the 46% of heads of household are single people, which includes 11.6 single parents, 9.9 million of which are single moms. Um, and in case you're interested, um, 766,000 single grandparents are raising children in America. So not just grandparents raising children, but single grandparents raising children. So a single parent as is a grandparent. Um, three quarters of a million. Now... I would submit to you, and hopefully you won't need a whole lot of convincing on this point, that this does not represent a revival in the biblical doctrine of celibate singleness. That's not what's happening here culturally. People did not wake up one morning and say, oh my gosh, do you know that in the Bible, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there is this whole passage about singleness and how profoundly dignified it is and how there are certain ways in which it's better than married life and if God calls you to it, you can be fully devoted to him in singleness, in mind, and in body, and in spirit, and we could just do that. We could be single and we kind of got out of hand on the thing, you know? That's, that's not what's happened, and it's very evident from some a couple of just very, really basic facts about our culture. The first is, um, six million singles are cohabiting. That is, enjoying the benefits of marriage without its responsibilities. It is both a rejection of singleness and a marriage. The biblical doctrine of singleness being celibate singleness fully devoted to the Lord, the biblical doctrine of marriage being fully devoted to a spouse in the rights and responsibilities of marriage, cohabitation rejects both. Second is the fertility rate in America. It's 2.01%. If you have amazing modern health care and everything goes fantastic to just replace your population and not go extinct, you need 2.1%. You need a fertility rate of 2.1, meaning um, at least one couple out of 10 has got to have three kids. Um, but that's not happening in the United States. And the fact that we're doing better than, you know, Italy at 1.2 uh, birth rate doesn't mean that we're not on the road to going extinct. In fact, it's, it's only— um, it's only the non-white families in America that are pulling us up to, to, point, to, to 2.01. And here's why. You can just set your watch by um, urbanized, industrialized societies when people have money and they can control births. They do. And we just sort of figure life is better with fewer kids. Those families like Pastor Next with like three kids and whatever, they just don't look happy. And Whatever blessing can be had for me by having children, surely you can get with having one or two. And so the whole industrialized world and people in general have demonstrated that the only reason worth having children is not for the maintenance of life and the passing on of civilization and cultural achievements in a new generation of people well-born, well-loved, and well-formed, for the good of the world and for their good, but really only for our good, and whatever benefits could be had must be had with one or two, and if they screw up, then, well, we can always kick them out. The birth rate is evidence that we we don't have a burgeoning theology of marriage and having children, but we have a declining one, and our sinful nature, which loves our own affluence, is winning out. And then lastly, 80 to 90—or 41 is— children in America born to unwed mothers. Which demonstrates not just the issue of young women having children and not being married, but also everybody else whose fault that is. That is, the men, the culture, the— there's 50 reasons why that's 41%. It's not just a bunch of girls having problems. It's their dads that are absent. It's their culture that's encouraging promiscuity. It's delayed singleness. It's— Lots of things, but it demonstrates we're not having any kind of revival in biblical views of singleness or marriage. And lastly, 80 to 90 percent—anybody want to take a guess at what that is? That is young adult sexual activity rates for single. Um, And that's not just—that's not percentages of young adults in their 20s that are sexually active. It would be higher than that. That is, um, that is just sexual activity. Um, that's non virginity among non virginity among singles. And you say, well, Nick, isn't that profoundly better in the church? Yeah, it's, it is better by about seven percent in the church among our singles, particularly young singles. We're way we're we're so we're so chaste. It's like seventy to eighty percent of our young singles are sexually active because everybody knows it is a horrifying, unbearable burden to go from 14 or so to 22 without having sex. I mean, that's just impossible. And I, I, remember, I remember being there, and I remember feeling like it was impossible. But now that I'm 35, I kind of think that I was kind of a shallow, dumb person then, looking back. it just, you know, perspective can be a lot. And, um, but, it just, but what it demonstrates is we do—what we don't have is a good theology of singleness. We don't have it for our older singles, we don't have it for our widowed or divorced singles, and we don't have it for our young singles. In fact, even though singleness is exploding in the culture in which we live, our doctrine and theological understanding, our gospel-centeredness and our understanding of singleness, is actually getting worse, not better. Now, And here's the reason for that, and this is why you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, Nick, do you have to talk about marriage in a sermon on singleness? I do, and here's why. Because the problem that these things point to is not that we're understanding um, singleness better, but what it demonstrates is that we're having an increasingly low view of marriage and children, and an increasingly romanticized view of free singleness and divorce. That's what's creating this. And really, one of the things—and here's the thing, who pays for that— The people who pay the worst are people who are either single or who, because of it, end up single. That's who pays the worst. And so singleness in America, I think particularly in some ways for Christian, has become both an idol and a sentence. Singleness is an idol to us. The freedom of free singleness is an idol, and at the same time, it feels like a sentence. And especially for Christians because they're emotionally torn because they know that there are certain biblical standards and they're just not doing them, which creates this rift within inside you, which also creates an issue with your relationship with God and all that. And it's just this big sort of nasty spiraling tornado. And it's very clear from secular writing on this that um, this is sort of beneath the surface and it hasn't come out entirely yet. For example, there's a, an online magazine out of Seattle, which is sort of a very single— urban center called straight.com. And um, there's a number of articles recently about singleness and about—one of the articles is about these extremely attractive, extremely accomplished, internationally traveling single people who don't have boyfriends or girlfriends, and how can that possibly be? And, and, but basically they all whined about the opposite sex. The women were like, you know, guys don't have any guts and they don't come up to me and blah, blah, blah. And the guys were like, all these women think they're princesses and no guy's ever good enough for them. And so they just kind of sneer at us and I don't, we don't want to talk to them. And here's the problem. Yeah, it might be partly the problem with each gender. Yeah, guys aren't very good at talking to women anymore. That's true. Women are a little stuck up on thinking that they're princesses and no guy could ever possibly be good enough for them. Yes, that's partly true. But part of it is just a problem with understanding what singleness and marriage are. Part of the reason why guys accuse girls of being stuck up is because the girls don't understand marriage, and neither do the guys. The reason the other accusation happens is partly because they don't understand what marriage is. They don't understand what makes for a good spouse. They think that, that a good spouse is somebody who keeps you constantly raptured in being interesting the rest of your whole life. That's, it's great to marry somebody interesting. It's not on the top ten list of things you actually need. And so—and here's why this is important. In the Westminster Confession from 16 or 15, whatever, one of the—one of the sins listed in it was prolonged singleness. And the reason was because in prolonging singleness, not only do you build into your own selfishness, but also you—you actually are denying someone a spouse who's supposed to have one, either by tying up this person's spouse with you through prolonged dating or cohabitation, or by you supposing to be their spouse, but you are withholding yourself from them as a full spouse, even though you're meant to give yourself to them. And there is a lot of singleness that frankly could be cleared up if we got that stuff sorted out. And then we just have the, have the single people who are supposed to be single, and then we can just minister directly to them. Now, it's probably not controversial that the main advantage that virtually everybody believes exists with singleness is freedom. If you talk to your average secular person who's like, I'm single and it's awesome, and you say, well, why, why do you think singleness is so awesome? You probably can boil the answer to a certain extent down to freedom. I can do what I want. I can go where I want. I can have my things the way I want. I don't have to blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm free. And if you look at this passage biblically and you ask, You know, why does—what does Paul say is so good about singleness? It's the same answer. It's freedom. But they're totally different freedoms. They mean totally different things. The modern cultural freedom that makes singleness seem so great in their mind is, for the most part, a self-focused freedom. I'm free to do what makes me happy. I'm free for self-exploration. I'm free for self-fulfillment. I'm free for self-stuff. Whereas here, the focus on freedom is for devotion to Jesus. That the great advantage of celibate Christian biblical singleness is that you're free in body and spirit to be fully and totally devoted to Jesus. Nothing dilutes that. Nothing splits that. Nothing divides that. Nothing gets in the way of that. And it's more direct than it is indirect. You you have the opportunity to be completely and fully devoted to Jesus in both mind and spirit. And it's an amazing thing. It's so amazing that even if you have an opportunity for marriage, you might want to forego it because it's that good. Now, I think in order to get a good handle on this, we've got to recognize that Jesus does this, and, and one of the things we have to do to understand singleness biblically is to recognize that there's, there's, there's more than one kind of singleness. There's not just one kind of singleness. For example, Jesus says this in Matthew 19. You'll remember the first verse from last week, because I read verses 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 last week. He said, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. He's speaking about the verses before he referenced marriage, which I talked about one week or two—one week ago. And he says this, for some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So you see, he realizes that it's hard for us to accept that particular teaching. And he basically says this. He says, listen, some people are just born. They're not going to get married because they have—there's physical deformities or physical defects. And there are people like that. And, you know, we need—you need to recognize that. There are people out there that are going to be personally struggling with the whole issue of marriage and singleness because, because they were born with male and female sex organs or something. Like, it, they, they, there's issues like that that people have, and there are people like that, and Jesus loves them, and they may be celibately single for that, for that reason, and that's a reality. Other is they were made their, that way by men. That is, that there were practices in the ancient world where, particularly, this is almost always men, but men's gear were removed, so that they could work with, you know, with the royal harem or within the, within the royal areas, but they couldn't make a play for the throne because they couldn't take royal women and they couldn't have children through them and so on. And so they'd actually make these high-level men, often extremely talented men, um, eunuchs so that they could be used in the royal court as dignitaries and emissaries and so on, but that you'd never have that kind of risk. In fact, there's a lot of biblical scholars that believe that Daniel was probably a eunuch. Um... And then there are some people who just, they just choose it. They just, they, they could get married, they have the ability, but they just choose not to. They just, they just choose to stay single and celibate. So you can tell that Jesus means single and celibate when he refers to them euphemistically as eunuchs. They don't get to use their gear. They're eunuchs, metaphorically speaking, because their singleness is celibate. And he says some people choose that, and they choose it for the purposes of the kingdom of God. Now, um, there's at least four kinds of singleness that we can talk about. Um, Pre-marriage adulthood—that is, no opportunity for marriage yet or sort of coming into that life stage. There's prolonged singleness, which I've been kind of going on about. There's involuntary singleness—you're single, but you don't really want to be. And there's chosen singleness, the kind that this passage is talking about. And the reason it's important to distinguish between these is because what you need to do as a Christian is different in each one. The, what the step of faith is, isn't the same. For example, in, in pre, pre-marriage adulthood, um, the, the focus should be training rather than pining. Instead of being like, oh, when am I going to find that special someone, which is a bunch of poppycock anyway, um, to actually become the kind of person that that person would actually want to marry. I remember a few years ago, I was—this spe- is how I actually recruited Adam— was I was speaking at a college retreat in Chico, and I was we're there, of course, there's always piles of Christian girls there, and they're like, oh, guys, blah, 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 guys, blah, 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 guys. And, um, you know, and they're like, what am I going to find my special someone? Like, I sat and talked with these, these four girls from Sacramento for like two and a half hours about guys. I was like trying to just read, and they came up, and they're like, blah, blah, and, blah. And my, res- my, my response— to them is, yeah, dudes are idiots, and yeah, there's not enough of them in the church, and yes, Christian ministers like me should focus more on reaching young men, absolutely, blah, blah, blah. But here's, here's the deal. If you, if what you really want is to end up married to a Christian dude that really has some, some guts and some character and is the kind of man that you're going to actually want to be married to, what you need to do is quit pining away for that guy to show up and actually become the kind of woman who would have a chance with him if he came along. Because, because most Christian girls are just, they're waiting around for Boaz, but they're, they're little twits. They're not Ruth, and so that guy is, isn't going to pay any attention to them. You know, like, and I've, wa- I've, I've watched this in youth groups and in college ministries. I've watched, you know, I've watched, you know, girls, and, and I've seen guys do this too. I've seen guys like, you know, why, why isn't that girl interested me? I'm like the, I'm a football player. I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty cool. Yeah, right. Okay, fine. You put gel in your hair, but you're an idiot. Like, you're talking about—this This girl has to bet on you that you're going to marry her. You're actually going to get a job that when you have a fight, you're going to actually figure out a way to apologize or work with her or get along with her or whatever. That you're not going to—after you have a kid or two with her, you're not going to just leave her. Which tons of dudes, just like you do. Like, you got you, you to gotta persuade her heart that you're not some kind of chump when most dudes your age are. She's got to bet not even just on your character. She's got to bet on your trajectory. Like, you need to help her out a little bit and become like a dude, right? But nobody wants to hear that because that's hard work for you. You have to become a disciple of Jesus, which is exactly what Paul says here. You have to become fully devoted to God in body and spirit, even if you're not going to stay single. Because the character you'll develop is going to be necessary whether you get married, or whether you stay single, and either could happen if you're in that first group. The second group is prolonged singleness, and that is singleness for the purpose of personal freedom and self-fulfillment and self-affirmation. I can have my things, and I can have them the way I want, and I don't want to And I think, I think the Christian response to that, if you find yourself in that group, is repentance. Realizing that that's a really, that's kind of a terrible idea, and that you want to do something different. And if you're a dude, you either say, or a girl, either you have the gift of singleness, and you choose it, and you embrace it, or you don't, And you get about finding the person God wants you to be with, which is an active, not passive process. It has to be more active today because everybody thinks it's a passive process. Now, um, to people not in that age group, here's one of the things I need to talk about. Lexi and I have talked about this. You know, parents, particularly like, you know, middle-class parents, we think about trying to save money for our kids to go to college, right? I'm gonna save for my kids to go to college. Or we think we'll do that when we're in our 50s or something, when we finally get done paying for boats and stuff. And so But one of the things I think we need to think about is if we're, if we're biblical Christians and we want our young people to grow up and to be celibately single and then embrace the marriage or embrace biblical celibate singleness, um, in what ways will we, do we as their parents need to try to be their allies in that process? And here's what I think. I think that, that we need to do what we can to be ready to help them financially, because for most of our kids, they're going to be in a very protracted educational process, aren't they? Mass, you know, I mean, t- t- to get where we were, most of them are probably going to have to get master's degrees or something like that. They're going to be in school until they're 29. But if, if we want them to say, listen, if, if, you're, if you're called to be single, great. If you're not called to be single, when you, find, when you, you should be looking for somebody. You should, you should be a committing kind of person. When you find that person, you should let the fact that you're burning with passion drive you to the altar rather than the bedroom, which the altar— leads to the bedroom, and you should go ahead and get married. Now, that, what that means is, is that your son or your daughter is going to come to you when they're 21 or 23 or whatever, and they're going to say, listen, I know you want me to do a master's degree. I want to do a master's degree. We, you know, Andy and I have more education to do, but we're just—we're at this point where we know we're going to tie our lives together, and we just believe we should get married. We're, we're kind of burning with passion, and we're trying to honor God, but we want to honor you, and we want to be successful, and at that point, we need to be willing to say, I understand that. I understand that. And your, your mom and I have been, have actually, you don't know this because we didn't tell you because we wanted you to work hard in undergrad, but we've been, we've been saving for years so that we could help you through your master's degree years in case this happened. So we're going to, we want to pay for your first master's year tuition so that when you can work and when you can do this and you can, it's going to be tough. We're still going to make it hard for you, but we're going to make it so you can be married and you can try to honor God. And we're going to try to be your ally in that without pampering you and paying your way and spoiling you. Does that make sense? I think we really need to think about that because otherwise it's, it's going to be worse when our kids—when our kids, whatever little have— a lot of us have little kids now or kids just coming It's going to be worse for them. Education is going to be more protracted. It's going to be more difficult to pull that off. And so we need to think about if we want to hold this standard to them, how can we help them? I think we need to think about that. The third is involuntary singleness. And the thing that you need to do if you're a Christian in that one is you need to not get bitter. There's one lady who wrote in to a a Christianity Today article on this who was single, and she said, um, if singleness is a gift, why didn't I get mine? Meaning, she's single, prolongedly, and she doesn't feel like she has had any gift of singleness. She really wanted to be married. And there's a lot of people in involuntary singleness who feel that way. Lots of people, especially women. Especially women. There's all— in the entire history of the church has been more women than men in the church, and um, I think as men, we need to try to do better evangelism among men. I mean, it really—isn't it our job to help our sisters out, honestly? Like, I mean, does it bother you? Like, are you the kind of dude that thinks, man, it's cool to be a Christian because there's like lots of girls to choose from and they, you know, like they have to get married and, you know, I, I got plenty of options. Are you that guy or are you the kind of guy that it bothers you that you have other Christian sisters in the church and there is no, there is no dude for them and they do want one? Like, there is no great guy. Like, you, you, you have a single Christian friend, and, there, and you can't play matchmaker. You, do, you just don't know a guy you could set her up with, or vice versa. Does that bother you? It should bother us. We shouldn't just be like— those of us who are like happily married, we shouldn't be like, well, I'm happily married. You should—you should go to some youth conference or something. Right? Um, but if you're in that life stage, acceptance is the key. You got to not grow bitter. You've got to embrace it as best you can. You've got to be fully devoted to God in your singleness. And then lastly, chosen singleness, the key is to use it. I mean, the apostle is saying in this passage, it's an opportunity. It's, and it's an advantage. It's an advantageous opportunity. You have an opportunity that married people don't have, particularly married people who are raising kids. And you, there are things you can do they can't do, and you need to use it. You need to do something with it. Don't just— Use it for your own self. Don't be like, well, you know, I'm single. I could just commit myself more to my job, and instead of, you know, 80, I can make 120 in five years. So what? I mean, to, to what extent is the kingdom of God strengthened, and are the purposes of Jesus greater in the world because you're single? Does that make sense? Okay. So let's look at, um, let's look at two advantages that this, this passage talks about in relationship to singleness, okay? The first is the advantage of avoiding sacrifice and suffering of marriage. The first advantage of singleness is to avoid the, su- the sacrifice and suffering of marriage. And the second is to the advantage of accessing the sacrifice and suffering of the single life. Those are the two advantages. Um, it is true that there are some types of suffering and difficulty that good marriage alleviates. A godly marriage will alleviate certain kinds of human longing and suffering. Um, I am virtually never lonely. The one thing I cannot get is a minute to myself. Right? I mean, just say amen if you're a mom with three kids. And I, you know what I mean? Like, I see Laura over there. She's like, <laughs> I hear that. Right? You just, you can't get a minute to yourself, but you're not lonely. There's people around who you, you're loving, and they're loving you. You're constantly interacting. You know, my wife goes away for a couple of days with the kids, and I, I mean, my disciplines of—, of dealing with being alone have totally gone away after 13 years of marriage, and three kids, and a dog, and stuff—interns, and I don't know what to do with myself. I get lonely in like 30 minutes. I'm just like, when are they coming? What's happening? What's going—it's quiet. I don't have a headache, you know? Um, And so there are certain desires in terms of sexual fulfillment and—and um, overcoming loneliness and companionship and those kinds of things that are greatly alleviated by marriage, and marriage is wonderful for that. But there is this saying— you might not have very many verses from the Bible memorized, but you probably have this verse memorized— marriage is no bed of roses. That's a true statement. There are lots of problems with marriage, lots of human suffering it creates, right? Like putting a man and a woman together, you know? And um there is a lot of suffering that is inherent within marriage, right? Uh, most spouses would probably admit, if they were going to be honest all or if you got a couple of drinks in them, that for at least some portion of their marriage, they, they were not a very good spouse. So, so I, Lexi and I have been married 13 years, two to five years for each of us. You could—each of us would admit we were—we were not a very helpful spouse. And we created hardship rather than friendship for our spouse. Um, and most spouses at least are bad in certain areas. So there's a spouse that they're really good on these couple of things, but th- th- you know they're they're comforting and they they admire the spouse, but they're terrible with money. And and so they, you know they create value here, but they just really kill you over here. And most of us are like that. And and so we we help and we hurt each other. Um, you know some people are, are do great at earning and they really support the family financially, but they you can't have a good argument with them. They turn it into a fight every time, and you just can't get anywhere on an issue, and it's just really frustrating, you know, because, you know, Nick's always right at work, so, right? And so, it really should have been your name there, but you see how that works? So, so and then, plus the entanglements, you know, the, the, the bonds of marriage are also the entanglements of marriage, right? So, for example, one of the things that complicates this passage is that there's a, there's a verse that says, you see that there? It says, because of the present crisis— what is that? The, the context really makes it look like it's not the present crisis of being a Christian or something, but it's the present crisis like in Corinth, at that moment, something was happening. And it was something that made it more difficult to be married. The, the two best guesses by biblical scholars is that there was severe drought in that area of Greece, or that it was localized persecution. Right? So, if, if there was going to be severe drought, and you're going fi- to be able to pull off about a handful of grain per day to eat. Do you want to be single, or do you want to be married with four children? You see? It's the an easy answer, isn't it? There are some kinds of trouble, some kinds of circumstances that aren't just bad, but they're much worse if you're married with children. And in certain circumstances, singleness is really great. Take persecution, for example. You know, persecution is going to come along. They're going to beat you to death. Is it easier to flee if you're a single person or if you're married with some kids? It's much easier to just pack a backpack and go if you are single. It's very—in fact, if you, if you look around the world, who, who, are, who are the refugees in the world? It's mostly families, because when the rebel army comes in— it's people who—their livelihood is there, their home is there, they're situated. They can't, it's very hard for them to leave because—and they have children. They can't just take their three-year-old and their five-year-old and their eight-year-old and, the, and, and go faster than an army. They can't hold on to the back of a bus and all their kids and get where they're going. It's, it's, there's, there are these entanglements of family that are its bonds that create huge liabilities. It's the financial crisis of 2008 to the present— If you're going to be somebody who loses your job and you're the primary income winner for your family, would you rather be single or would you rather be married with kids? It's an easy decision, right? There there are many sufferings that exist in life that happen to us that are much easier to get through when you're single. Because the assumption here is is that if you have the right theology of marriage, you're hopefully going to have the right theology of passing on life and civilization through children. And so most marriages are going to be procreative. And so you're going to have children, and children are a blessing, but they're also a huge liability in relationship to suffering, especially if things are going badly in the culture of the society. Whatever goes bad for you goes much worse for you because you're trying to care for and protect children. And one of the advantages of singleness is that you bypass that. And that's a real advantage. It's a real advantage, and, theref- and that may also help you not think that marriage is somehow the solution to your problems. It's not. Marriage has its own set of problems, and some of them it can be much worse. But there's also the other advantage that's just as important, and that's the advantage of accessing sac- of accessing sac— it's not just the, the suffering and sacrifice you get out of if you're single, but there's also sacrifice and suffering that you get to have if you're single which is just as big an advantage. Paul, Paul sells this just as hard as he sells the suffering and sacrifice you avoid. He sells the sacrifice and suffering you get. Um, look at these verses. He, he says in the beginning of that paragraph in verse 32, the first line is, I would like you to be free from concern, right? Which goes back to that question of freedom. Is it free from, freedom from concern so that you can do whatever the heck you want? Or is it freedom from concern so that your life can be focused in a, in a godly, gospel-centered direction, right? That's the issue. It's the second, right? And you see that because the last verse in the paragraph, he says this, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. Now he means that literally. When he says, I'm saying this not to restrict you into singleness, he means that. When he says, if you want to get married, go ahead, he means that. This is not meant to be some kind of strong-arming into singleness. He's selling singleness. He's saying— Quit thinking it's bad. It's not bad. Singleness is a great status to be in. You want to get married? Get married. But don't do it with a naive understanding of what marriage is and a naive understanding of what singleness is. Singleness has some profound advantages. And when you stack them up against what the reason— some people say, well, I'd have to get married sexual fulfillment. You stack, stack up the real advantages of singleness with sexual fulfillment, and you play those against each other, Singleness ought to come out in a sane person's mind really well, right? Especially those of us who are married and know that marriage is not a mere equation for sexual fulfillment. Now one, now you might say, okay, well, but—okay, but Nick, why is— why is marriage, why is being single fully devotion to God and marriage isn't? I mean the whole the whole Bible says marriage is this great thing. Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Song of Solomon talks about rejoicing with the wife of your youth and isn't it wonderful and you can be in love and blah blah blah. And Genesis minute people are created in Genesis God's like we shouldn't have just a man we should have a woman and they should be married and they should have children and so you've got Genesis 2 the two will become one flesh and they populate the earth and blah blah, blah. like the whole Bible is this whole book that esteems marriage and esteems having children and esteems building civilization together and esteems all of that so wh- how can he say this that that's devotion to the Lord isn't getting married and having children and building a society and 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 mirroring Christ in the church within a marriage isn't that at being wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. I mean, don't—aren't married people wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord? I mean, why would he say that this is somehow better? And, and there's lots of possible arguments you can make, but here's one. And I'll, we'll just call it—let me just call it the, um, the law of division, right? The principle of division. So let's just call it the principle of division, if you want to write something in your notes. And that is this. If you're only doing one thing, you are hundred percent vectored in one direction, okay? and all of your, all of your distances in that direction, and how much you accomplish actually increases because your work builds on it and builds on it and builds on it. The minute you separate into two, you're doing two things, it's not 50-50. It drops down to 45-45. The minute you're doing more than one stuff, you're not just, you're not just dividing out of hundred the number that you are, but you lose a percentage just in the division itself. So if you are totally doing one thing, like you're, all you do is work. You work, 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 work. It's a hundred, you're hundred percent at work. The minute you do something else, let's say you get married, you don't go 50-50, you go down
0: 45-45.
1: Then you have kids. Now you're at 29-29-29. Do you see how that works? You're in multiple directions, which is difficult enough it is, but the divisions themselves pull a certain percentage out of the system because you lack focus. I mean, 30 or 40 years ago, there, was some, there, there were people talking about multitasking. Multitasking is a good thing. You should multitask. Multitask. You can get more stuff done. And there are a couple kinds of multitasking that actually work. Very few, but there are a few. You know, listening to a talk while you're doing the dishes. Yeah, you do the dishes 30% slower, but you listen to an hour talk, and so, okay, it works. But, but generally speaking, when you multitask, you lose. You don't remember as much. You don't think as clearly. You don't get as much done. Multitasking doesn't work, and not only does it not work, there was about, you know, 15 years of research that was like multitasking doesn't really work, but now, more recently, there's been research on its effect on people's brains. That it actually, it, it makes you less. It doesn't just mean you accomplish less. It makes you less because it begins to scatter your thinking process and the way you think about stuff. And so they, there was an ABC or an NBC, NBC special some time ago on 20-year-olds on at MIT who were studying hard sciences and their capacity for concentration linear thought, which was going down. Smartest kids in the country dealing with things that you have to think linearly, but they've got, they've got smartphones and they, they're on their, they, they, They've got Google chat up and their, you know, their Facebook is over here and then they're doing math and science at the same time. And so they learn one thing, but then they think about, you know, bananas, and then they think about another thing, and then they go get a latte, and then they think— of, and they're constantly getting interrupted, and they do 50 things at once. They don't just lock themselves in a cubicle for eight hours and study math like people oftentimes used to do in college or be part of a fraternity. And what that does is it, it changes the way we think and remember things. We remember less. We think less clearly. We think less linearly, and our minds are much more confused. And listen, what a smartphone accomplishes, a couple of kids will accomplish in spades. People who have lots going on in their life, there are effects on us that even though we're doing things that are very worthwhile, like being married, having kids, all that kind of stuff, there are things that we just—it's very hard for us to accomplish. It's—one of the things that's very hard for me to do is to come up with strings 60 minutes together to work on a sermon. It's just people coming in and out of my life constantly. It's so hard for me to be reflective. Because my life is so—there's so many different vectors pulling me in so many different directions. John Stott, who was a single man who, who died in either his late 80s or early 90s this last year, he wrote a commentary on the whole Bible in, in individual volumes called The Bible Speaks Today. In, for in some places in Africa, it's been translated into local languages and is the sole pastoral education and biblical education for pastors. In many places in sub-Saharan Africa where there's no theological education. But here's why. Stott didn't even eat breakfast with people. He lived alone. His home was called The Wreckage. The bachelor pad, right? There, there was an African guy who came to stay with him for a month who was a fellow Anglican. said he stayed with John Stott for a month, saw him one time because he made an appointment to eat breakfast with him. He was incredibly antisocial, but if you were around him, he was very social but he just chose to box himself up in a room and get work done. And, and he wasn't ignoring a wife and kids to do that. It allowed him to be 100% focused on what he's doing, and he accomplished an enormous amount— something that I will never accomplish in my life. I'll never accomplish anything like that in my life. There are a number of things I will accomplish, and I have chosen this other route, and, and I, I don't apologize for that. I think it's exactly God's will for my life, but there are certain things that I am disadvantaged towards and I can't do because of the, the principle of division. And even if that was the only advantage of singleness, that would be a sufficient advantage for certain accomplishments. And some of you may choose. You might say, well, I'm in science, and I want to be a researcher, and I I really believe that I might be able to break this thing through if I commit my life to it. Or you might want to be a missionary, but you might be going somewhere where they might just kill you, and you might just decide that you're just going to do that instead. You might find some one thing that requires your focus and requires your risk. there are at least five significant advantages that single people have that married people don't. Freedom of mental concentration. I've already talked about that. Freedom of availability. One of the things that Lloyd and I talked about, we debriefed his sermon this last week. I thought it was really good. But one of the things we talked about was in his sermon where he talked a good bit about singleness, he talked about how sometimes single people feel slighted because married people act like they should be the ones always volunteering at church because they have all this extra time and they kind of feel slighted by that which is legit. And then another place he was talking about singles. He said, one of the great things about being single is that you can volunteer at church a lot more. And I said, did you realize he said those two things? He said, yeah. He said, I would have liked to work it out more. But that's, that's, that's true. I mean, in terms of leisure for volunteering, I, I did more when I was single. I just could. I, didn't ha- I just didn't have responsibilities at home. And if, if I was working at this church 90 hours a week, the elders would have to, would have to do some kind of church discipline on me. But if I was single and I want to work here 89 hours a week, they didn't—it ha- wouldn't have any grounds for that. There's a freedom of life focus. You can, you can, you can just do more in, in a particular area if you're focused, and married people just can't do that in the same way. There's freedom of poverty. You know, John Stout can live in a place called the wreckage. Before I was married, I lived in an apartment. Our shower didn't have a shower head. It was just a pipe that poured water out of the wall. I was perfectly content with that. Here's the weird thing. When Alexi and I got married, she was not okay with that. (laughs) You know, I remember Alexi telling me while we were dating that she thought it was unreasonable that we didn't clean our bathroom for 18 months. You know, I remember when she told Adam, our intern, um, when he was first dating with us, that she thought at least washing his sheets every month was probably a good idea and him being a little shocked at that. I mean, you could, there's just, there's, there's just, you can live in a way, you don't have to impress anybody, and there's a ton of expenses that you get when you kind of live with somebody who expects you to, you know, like, not live in squalor. That just, I mean, like, I, I like, we had, like, can I have a house? She thought that would be a good idea for us to have a house. And in a, a vehicle, you know, that, you know, the kids can actually, like, sit not on top of each other. And, and, you know, so now we pay taxes on the house, and we have the payment on the house, and we did. And this is all reasonable when you're raising a family, right? But if I was single, man, I'd have a moped. I'd be living on somebody's porch. Like, <laughs> Who cares, right? I mean, honestly, you can—I mean, if you want to be poor, you can be poor. You don't don't have to do anything. And and so I could give more of my income. I could go on anywhere in the world I wanted to go. I mean, there are certain things that that would allow me to do, and I'm perfectly free to do that. But if I did that right now, one of my kids would grow up and be like, Daddy, did we really have to do—live like that? Why did I sleep in a box, right? (laughs) And there's—and there's freedom of risk. There are certain things that I might want to do that I have—I have to think about whether or not I should do them. And I don't mean skydiving. I mean— I mean like, you know, going to certain parts of the world to tell people about Jesus. I mean going to politically unstable places to help build a hospital. I mean saying things publicly in places that could get me imprisoned or killed. I mean, there—there there are risks that you take in life. And, and, and I don't—listen, I don't believe that—I think, as for the most part, all of us need to take more risks as Christians. That's what I, I think we all need to take more risks. I think most of us hide behind our responsibilities, and we say, well, I can't do that because of the kids. Well, really, I'm just teaching my kid to be a coward, thinking that I'm trying to do the right thing for them, and really, I should—I should, think we should all probably take more risks. Okay, so just—that's where I'm coming from. But single people— can be less reflective about that. They have fewer responsibilities. Certain risks that somebody like me should really probably just avoid, at least for the, for the next few years until my kids are a little older. A single people don't have to. If you want to go to Burma, go to Burma. If you feel God's calling you to do X, do X, as long as it's biblical. You don't have to worry about that stuff. And listen, that shouldn't make you bitter. That should make you excited. That should inspire you. you and there's probably 10 or 12 more that we could talk about, right? These are just five of them. And these are major advantages. If you see your life as something you want to be totally devoted to God in mind, in body, and in spirit. You see, if that's not your goal, if you're a Christian on one level, but your goal in life really isn't to be fully devoted to Jesus and everything, these do not sound very exciting. They <laughs> oh good, Nick, I can suffer for Jesus. That sounds like a fabulous thing. But listen, if you're converted on the level to where Jesus is the Savior and King, the kingdom of God is the kingdom that will be, this world in this form is passing away, that you want to be like and and serve the Savior, these five advantages are enormous. They're, They're a dream come true. And And for those of us that are married, there should be a part of us that looks at those and goes, looks good. Man. So let me end with this. Um, Verses 39 and 40. I'm going to skip that for now. 39 and 40 talk about um whether or not you should get married. It's the, oh, if you're engaged to this virgin and blah, blah, blah. And there's two commands, right? It's, it's um, if, you, if you get married, you've got to stay with them the rest of your life. And if you get married, they have to belong to the Lord, right? So two commandments. If you get married, it's for keeps. And two, you can't marry a non-Christian if you're a Christian. Those are the two commands. Everything else is judgment. You have to decide. You have to make a call. But the emphasis is on decisiveness. Do something. You know, if you're engaged, you know, th- he's like, so, so here's a person, he's engaged to this woman and he's, you know, they're gonna get married, but they're kind of waiting on something, but then he feels like he ought to marry her, but maybe he's gonna stay single. And he says, listen, make a call and go with it. Just make a call and go with it. And don't constantly wonder what, what you should have done or what you ought to do. You just do it. And if you want to marry her, marry her. And then stay with her the rest of her life until one of you dies. And if you don't want to, and you feel like you've got the strength, and you've got the calling, and you've got the gift to not do it, and you're not going to burn with passion for the rest of you, then don't marry her. It's up to you. Just, but, do, but do it. And either way, either choice that you make, you can live fully devoted to God in such a way as you mirror and follow the Savior. Because if you, if you think about Jesus and how he made his choice on this, um, Jesus was the one who chose to be to be celibate in his singleness, fully devoted to God in which he embraced all five of these advantages for the maximum effect of the gospel going out to all people. Right? He was an amazing example of real singleness. He demonstrates that if if God is everything to you, then singleness can be enough for you. But Why did he do it? He did it because he was burning with passion for the bride he wanted to be married to. Didn't he? He did it to purchase a people for himself to which he would be in a marriage relationship, so to speak, for eternity. He did it to create a situation in which he would be together with us. He would be our Lord and we would belong to him forever. He did it to create the picture that we mirror to the world when we get married. But you've got to pick one, and you've got to go with it. You've got to be decisive. Mirror the Savior. Be fully devoted to Him. Make a choice. And if later on you you want to change it, if you're single and you want to get married, you can. It's fine. But don't, don't live in the singleness indecisively. Embrace it, and, and in each of these cases, in each of these cases, it's got to come from Jesus. You're not going to make it married without Jesus, and it's going to be very hard. You're not going to be able to be holy. You're not going to be able to be what God has actually called you to be without Jesus. You might be able to hang in the marriage for the rest of your life. That might work. But you're not going to be able to be what Jesus has called you to be in a marriage without Jesus, and you're not going to be able to live out singleness with full and beautiful devotion to the Lord in body and in spirit without Jesus. He is the first and most necessary component to this, to give you the strength to do it and to give you the example for it. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you'd help us to embrace and embody this as best we can. We recognize that um, we're going to f- fight a lot of culture here for a long time, and so we really have to have solid in our mind what marriage is and what singleness is and what these things are. And we pray that there would be a great revival in biblical singleness and that it wouldn't be an expression of our, um, of our selfishness, but it would be an expression of our desire to be wholly devoted to you as directly as possible and with all the advantages of it for the greatest effect on your kingdom and your reputation in the world and for the good of all people. We pray that among our married and our single people, there would be a very strong understanding of the good of singleness. And that in all of these things, we would be a decisive people, embracing the role you've given us and living it with all our heart.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.